Turn to John chapter 12. My prayer this week and my burden this week as I prepared is that in these next few minutes that you would understand God better and His redemptive pattern and that you would find encouragement in troubling times. I think that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about trouble myself. I, I know the trouble's in store, and I know trouble's behind me. I don't feel like I'm in the middle of it right now, but I know that a lot of people are. They're either coming out of it or they're going into it, and that we need to be conscious about being prepared for trouble all the time and even staying in front of it. So if you're not in the midst of troubling times right now, you will be. If you are in the midst of troubling times right now, then this will hopefully be an encouragement for you. But the greater point of this morning is that we understand our God better and His redemptive pattern. So let's look at John chapter 12. We're just going to look at a verse and a half or so, beginning in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's all we're going to look at this morning, or at least that's our focal passage. Jesus has just shared with the disciples and anyone else who is listening on, listening in, that he's going to die. He's illustrated his death and the meaning of it and the concept or the outcome of it by likening himself to a seed that falls to the ground and is buried and then gives life and um, bears fruit. And he's essentially describing that they are that fruit if they follow him. But if they follow him, then it also means their death. So he's just been speaking about his death, and he starts out by saying, Now my soul is troubled. The same word for soul is the same word for life. Some, I think there's times where we can feel like, man, my life is troubled. So that, that's kind of what he's saying here. Our, our soul is that inward part, that unseen part that hurts when a friend leaves town or moves away. The soul is the part that hurts right now, Jake and Stephanie going back. The soul is the part that's glad when you're reunited with friends and family. And it's that deepest, most inward part in Christ right now that is troubled. The word for troubled also means stirred up. It means disturbed and thrown into confusion. So if I were to translate this and paraphrase this, the Ben International paraphrase, it would be now my soul. Actually, there's two possibilities. For how this can be translated. Here's the one that would be the paraphrase of the version that you have in front of you, likely. Now my soul, my life is troubled, stirred up, disturbed, and thrown into confusion. But what am I to do? Ask my Father to keep me from this? Well, of course not. I have a purpose to fulfill in this dreadful hour. And then he begins to pray, Father, glorify your name. That's the Ben paraphrase version of what you have in front of you, likely, unless you have some weird version that I didn't study. Most of our translations treat the original language this way, as if he's asking a rhetorical question and then answering it himself. It's almost like he's treating it in this treatment of it, in this passage, in this paraphrase, and in our translations in front of us, like, of course I wouldn't ask the Father to spare me from this hour. It sounds like the steely-eyed Savior of John chapter 10. Listen to these words. 
For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You just hear the kind of the brave heart sort of resolve. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. No one takes it, meaning my life, from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. That sounds like the steely-eyed Savior Sort of Jesus that faced the cross with really what I would call inhuman bravery. Now, is that realistic? Is there resolve there? I think there's definitely resolve there. But as I studied this passage more and more, as I considered it, I went from the original language to a translation. You might think, well, you're a pastor of five, four and a half, five, four years. You know, you're going to trump all the translators. A good part of my work is going back to the original language. And I wanted to escort you into what I would say is a translation of this passage based on a study of the original language. Here again is Ben's paraphrase in what I would opt to be the truer version. Now is my soul, my life, troubled, stirred up, disturbed, and thrown into confusion. But what am I to do? Question mark. Prayer begins. Father, Keep me from this hour. Mm. But I have a purpose to fulfill in this dreadful hour. Father, glorify your name. The reason I'm okay with going that direction, and in fact, the reason that I would die on that direction, is because I've seen that before. Matthew chapter 26, listen to these words. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I've heard that heart and that mindset before because I've seen it before. Look at, let's incorporate the two passages together. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Father, save me from this hour. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Essentially, we've synthesized the heart of that moment, the Gethsemane moment, and we've looked at this passage in John chapter 12, and this sounds like the very human Jesus that faced the cross, the troubling, the stirring, the disturbing cross. I like to let the word interpret the word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I like to let the word interpret the word because then it's difficult to read things into it. This is a passage that helped me at least understand what I believe we're seeing here in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28. Hebrews chapter 5 says this, verse 7. It's on page 1003 of your pew Bible. In the days of his flesh, which would mean right here, John chapter 12, verse 27, going into his final week. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. I think that's the Jesus that we're seeing in John chapter 12. 
verse 27 and 28. It's like this is John's version of the Gethsemane prayer. Not my will, but your will. Spare me of this cup, but not my will, but your will. Wherever you land, again, I would land on the latter, but wherever you land, even if you land on the former and you want to go with the translators and the versions that you likely have in front of you, you've got to get stuck on the word troubled. You've got to appreciate that our Jesus was especially troubled. And in his troubling hour, that he was especially human. Jesus was and is fully God and fully man. He wasn't any less human than any one of us. And at the same time, he was and is completely God. You have to appreciate his humanity and him being troubled, that he's feeling the same things that we would likely be feeling. Not the sin things, but the temptation things, for sure. He would be feeling all of these things in that same Hebrews area. Hebrews chapter 4 says, We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with, with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but is yet without, without sin. I think we're seeing his humanity here in John chapter 12 and imagining that as he's troubled, that he's representing himself as especially human. You can imagine the anticipation that you're going to die. He's been saying through his whole ministry, I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up. A grain of wheat's going to fall to the ground and die. I'm going to be lifted up. He knows he's going to die, and the gravity of that moment is hitting him right here when the Greek come to see him. Now my hour is here. Now my hour begins. We're in our final moments of the ministry. The anticipation of the pain, the anticipation of the suffering, the anticipation of the beatings, the anticipation of the nails. That's enough for trouble, I think. Then there's also the anger over the injustice of it. I've seen and heard anger from you before as we've sit and we've talked about things, we're counseling through things where you're frustrated because of the way you're treated at the office, at work. Because there's a terrible injustice where you've done nothing wrong and yet people treat you bad. I've seen and heard that frustration and that anger. Do you think that Jesus was free of the temptation to be angry? What an injustice. The only one who's never done anything wrong. He doesn't get a slap on the hand. He gets nailed to a tree. Imagine dealing with that injustice. He may not have arrived at anger, but I would expect he would at least be unsettled and troubled about it being traded for barabbas could you be would you not be troubled people shouting for barabbas who just days before had shouted hosanna with the same mouths that you created and then there's the trouble over the separation from his father it's probably the most terrible pain to bear the wrath of his father and to die for us. Trouble of the cross. I think we're seeing that in John chapter 12, verse 27 and 28, where he's praying to be saved from this hour, like Gethsemane. And we're seeing his humanity. And in the same prayer, we're seeing his divinity. We're seeing the Son of God that's obedient even to the point of death that will fulfill the purpose of the hour to glorify God in those two verses.
I've been chewing on these couple of verses for a long time now, reading ahead where we're going, and I would call it ruminating. Any of you that have cows or have had cows or know anything about animal science, you know that a cow chews on something and swallows it, and then that cow burps it up. I don't mean to be gross, but he burps it up and he chews on it again, and then he swallows it again, and he burps it up, and that's the way they digest their food, and I've been ruminating Chewing on it, swallowing it, burping it back up again. Chewing on it some more the last few weeks. The thing that I've been chewing on more than anything is what seems to go together is this picture of trouble and glory. A troubling moment, a troubling hour, a troubled man, fully God yet fully man, and yet glory. And seeing how these things go together, I've been ruminating on that. And what I've realized as I've studied it is that God's glory in the backdrop of trouble is not unique. What we're seeing here in this moment seems to be his redemptive pattern. I'll give you some glimpses of that. It began, at least the first picture that I see is in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. We've been studying that on Wednesday nights. And this ministered to me to see this right up front. Is that when God spoke, the first thing he did is he spoke light into darkness seems to be his redemptive pattern from the very beginning is that he allows darkness that he could speak light into it he did this with noah where he delivered him and his remnant family from the trouble of a worldwide flood seems to be his redemptive pattern. He did it with the nation of Israel. He delivered them from the trouble of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And it was glorified in that. That his name may be known and renowned. He led them into the promised land from the trouble of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It seems to be his redemptive pattern that trouble and glory and revelation of who he is seem to go together. And since Christ is God, we're going to see some of these things in Christ. And in fact, in John, we have. If you just stick with John, you see it all over the place. You can see this pattern in Christ where he shows up at a wedding where they run out of wine, which is darkness at a wedding in that day. Trust me. And he shows up. And he brings wine to the wedding, which is a picture of joy. In the backdrop of the trouble of a wineless wedding. He heals in the trouble of a boy that's about to die, the official son. He heals in the trouble of a man that's been lame for 38 years, laying by the pool of Bethesda. Trouble and glory go together. He heals in the trouble of a man that was born blind and lived his whole life blind. And he spits on the ground and he makes some mud and he puts it on his eyes and he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam and he's healed. But it's in the backdrop of a lifetime of blindness. Trouble and glory go together. He feeds the multitudes in the trouble, in the dark backdrop of thousands of hungry people. He walks on the water in the backdrop of a dark night with a strong facing wind to reveal his glory. He delivers a sinful woman from the backdrop and the trouble of a bunch of guys standing around with their stones like this ready to nail her. 
trouble and glory go together. And what we study most recently, the same God that said, let there be light, says, Lazarus, come forth. And he speaks Lazarus forth from the darkness of a cold, damp tomb where he lay decaying for four days. Trouble and glory go together. It seems that God's glory shows up where there's trouble. I've thought about Job. It's a book that's ministered to many, so many, for so long. Go ahead and turn there to Job chapter 2. I thought about if we followed and served a trouble-free God, some of the things we'd miss out on. I've thought about the question, what if God had not let Satan trouble Job? Then we wouldn't have the book of Job, (laughs) period. I don't know if it'd just be blank pages or if it'd just be a big void there that we just couldn't figure out why there's a void there or something missing. We wouldn't have the book there if God had not let Satan really wreck Job's life. And the consequences of that, I'll just read a few verses to you. Stay in Job 2. But the consequences of not having this book is that we would not see the God that confronted Job at the end of the book. And he said these words. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. He said, Who is that that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, Job. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Listen to what he says. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? If Job had not experienced the trouble, the glory of the God that you're about to hear would not be revealed. At least it wouldn't be in Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? On who lay or who laid its cornerstone? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come, see, and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. We wouldn't have met this God that commanded the morning. We wouldn't have met the God that binds the chains of Pleiades and loosens the cords of Orion. If Job had not experienced trouble, we wouldn't have met the God, or we wouldn't know the God and see these pictures of the God that knows when the mountain goats give birth. Oh, do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? We wouldn't have met this God if it was not for Job's travail. seems that God's glory shows up where there's trouble. There's a mindset that I've had for a good part of my journey of faith up until the last couple of years ago. I don't have it now. But the mindset that if bad things are happening to us, then God must, I I don't know where I figured God was. (laughs) That God must have been somehow caught unawares and the devil got a hand up on him. And there's a mindset in Christian circles that if something bad is happening to you, then God must be snoozing or sleeping or somehow unable to do anything about it. 
But God isn't caught unawares when we're troubled. In fact, He has a plan for glory in the trouble. Job chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to these first 10 verses of Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity. He's already let Satan wipe out his family and his flocks and his camels, and everything that he owned. He said, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Give him some trouble. Job, because I'm going to be revealed in this. I'm going to be glorified. Go ahead. Give him some trouble, Satan. I'm going to be glorified in this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself. Are you, can you feel those sores? Can you see it? And God's still on his throne. That's trouble. I'm going to say that's trouble sores that you got to scrape with pottery. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, his old, helpful, loving, gentle wife, says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Is that a misprint? No, the word there in Hebrew is the word for evil. The English Standard Version at least puts a note down on the bottom and says, or disaster. Maybe that's a little easier to stomach. Shall we accept good from God and not evil or disaster or trouble? And then what Job says next, he says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That means he didn't err. When he said that good things and these disasters both come from God, he did not err with his lips. He didn't misspeak. He wasn't speaking out of ignorance. He was spot on. So maybe God ordains disaster so that he can be glorified. Look at Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. God has told Moses to go back to Egypt and lead his people out of Egypt, and Moses is doing everything he can to talk God out of that. In fact, in verse 10, he says, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or, or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, listen to what he says. Parents that have a child with a disability... Families that may have a family member that's disabled or has some sort of something that the world would call less than whole. Listen to what he says. 
Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm going to call that trouble. A lot of y'all know, not all of you, most of you know that we have three kids. Two of our three kids are visually impaired and not completely blind. But they are well beyond legal blindness. And uh, I'm going to call that trouble. But there's something cool about knowing that God didn't make any mistakes in that. That God made them like that. So that he can be glorified. It's the same God of John chapter 9 that made this man that sat by the gate. That had Jesus walking by and he, as Jesus walked by he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. <laughs> man, God's got a plan for glory in trouble. He's not just the God of deliverance, but he's also the God of the trouble that you'll be delivered from. So the troubled soul of Jesus in John chapter 12 is really no surprise to God. I think it's interesting in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about Christ crying out to the one able to save him. And it says that the Father heard him, but yet he still went to the cross. Because that trouble would be the ultimate glory. God is up to something whenever he lets you endure and face trouble. And what he's up to ultimately is his own glory. Turn to John chapter 1. <clears throat> this will give you an overall bird's eye view of what he's up to. We've seen it in John before, but I want to go back there and glimpse, just take a glimpse of it. And then I want to offer you three things to do with these ruminations. Three things to do with these ruminations. But here first, John chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to these words about our Lord and Savior, about our Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Listen, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. In John chapter 9, he says, I'm the light of the world. I think whenever we consider and study darkness and light, then we, begin, we can begin to consider what God is up to. As Jesus is the light of men, and as Jesus is the light of the world, then we can begin to understand that what God gave us and offered us in the person and work of Christ. He allowed a darkness where we are desperate, destitute, done, toast, we're due his wrath. And then he spoke, just like he spoke and said, let there be light. His son has stepped in to be that light, the light of the world, in our backdrop of darkness of sin. But as you study light and darkness, then you can begin to appreciate what he's up to. I have one of these big spotlights it's like a 100 million candle watt power spotlight sort of thing. I mean, that thing is powerful. It's so powerful whenever you turn it on that it kicks. 
I mean, that thing is bad to the bone. <laughs> Not really, it doesn't kick. Some of y'all are going, man, that's cool, I want to see that. It's really just a plain old spotlight, but this thing is powerful. But if I step out there at high noon after we're finished with worship service this morning and shine that spotlight across the, the parking lot, who's going to really appreciate that spotlight? You can't appreciate it because it's bright out. But then when I step out there in midnight and I shine that light where there's no ambient light from the city, where there's no light from any of the lights on this building, then you're going to appreciate that light, that somehow God is the same God of the darkness that he is of the light, and he's going to allow the darkness to happen, the trouble, so that he can show up and shine like a 100 million watt candlelight. Seems to be what he's up to. Now, what to do with these ruminations? How should this impact your faith and your trust and your witness? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Ron Perone preached, I don't know how many months ago it was now, this passage from 1 Peter. <clears throat> and I've gone back to it so frequently, but it's one that's so appropriate for this morning as we consider trouble and how they trouble and glory and how they go together. The first thing that I'll encourage you to do with trouble, if you trust that God is also the God of trouble as He is the God of deliverance, is to not waste your trouble. Whatever trouble you're going through or you're about to go through, to not waste that trouble. Because it's a cool opportunity for Him to be glorified. Here's a picture of that in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. In this you rejoice. This is referring back to the verses before where he's talking about how you were saved. He's writing this to believers. In this you rejoice, how you were saved. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Insert troubles in there, just so we can personalize this. Even though right now you've been grieved by various troubles, so that. I love so that's because they're so good. So that. The tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at what? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When that hit me, I'm so often praying, Lord, liberate me, save me from this trial, this trouble. As soon as I'm on the other side of this trouble, then I will really worship you. And boy, I'm really going to do everything I can to reveal Christ. And this passage reminded me and showed me that two things happen from those troubles those various trials. And the first is the tested genuineness of my faith is revealed and that that leads on to something even better, that my Christ is revealed. The very thing that I'm begging to be liberated from is the very thing that reveals our Christ. So that's how trouble and glory go together. Trouble's the vehicle for glory. The John chapter 12 picture that we're seeing, where we're seeing this troubled Christ and we see him entering into his hour, that's just the perfect, that's the textbook picture of it. But it's all over the Bible, and if you're following Christ, it's going to be all over your life too. It's his redemptive pattern. So don't waste your trouble by languishing, by moaning and moping, which I'm guilty of too. I'm not, notice I'm not pointing at you, I'm just counting off these things. I'm guilty. Moaning, moping, languishing, and here's a big one, medicating. I'm not talking about medicine. If you're like, oh, man, is he against medicine? Is he like, uh, what was the guy's, Tom Cruise? 
No, I'm not against medicine. Man, if you need meds, knock yourself out. What I'm talking about is medicating with going buying a bunch of stuff. That's one that I'm guilty of sometimes. Man, let me go buy something. I'm down. I'm going through a tough time. Let me go shopping. Guys can do that too. You might not go shopping for clothes. You might go shopping for something manly. But go medicating by buying something. That's what we do. Or we might medicate with food. Guilty. I eat more on Saturdays than I do the whole rest of the week. Because I'm troubled. And guess what I'm troubled about? What I'm doing right now. I'm troubled about how the people of God are going to receive God's word. I'm troubled about my ability to articulate and communicate. And I medicate with food. Just lately, I'm beginning to medicate more and more. Not medicate. Beginning more and more to pray. And hopefully eat less and less. But don't waste your trouble by medicating or languishing or moping with sin and stuff and food and anything else that we can medicate with. Light without darkness is pretty worthless and frankly it's invisible. So don't waste it. The second thing is let not your heart be troubled. The same Jesus that right here in John chapter 12, turn back to John chapter 14. The same Jesus that here in John chapter 12 says, Mmm, my soul is troubled, is the same Jesus that in John chapter 14, verse 1, says these words. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He also says it in verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. While Christ was troubled about this hour, he's encouraging his followers to not let their hearts be troubled. You may visit there, but don't live there. It may be a temptation, but don't let it be a sin to live in that place of troubling. And the reason is, is because the peace that he's saying, peace that I offer you, that's not a peace like the world, but the peace that I offer you, the peace that he encourages his followers, comes at the price of his troubling hour. I want to say that again because you've got to get that. The only way you can appreciate that your heart is not to be troubled while you're in the middle of your trial and in the middle of your trouble is because your peace was earned in his troubling hour. The same Jesus that says, my soul is troubled, later says, don't you be troubled. Because he's earning peace for you. The third thing is to understand his purpose in the trouble. Because he's got a purpose. He came and he lived and he died for a purpose. There's a Michael W. Smith song that's out, been out for a while I've heard it a number of times, and I never really connected with what was being said there, but it came to mind as I was preparing this sermon. It goes something like this. Crucified, laid behind a stone, you live to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. I bet most of you heard this song. If you listen to Christian music at all, I bet you heard this song. Like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall. And then the next phrase, he says, and thought of me above all. I don't think that's biblical. 
I think when Jesus on the cross was on the cross, I was a, certainly a consideration of you and me. Because he's on the cross, nailed there, bleeding, dying, and he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's an, it's an imperfect tense. It means that he's saying it over and over again. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So I know there's a consciousness and awareness of the people that are standing right there, the ones that nailed into the cross. So I know he's mindful of me, but I don't think above all he's thinking about me. Above all, he's thinking about what it says in the next verse there, in verse 28, the first of that verse, where his prayer continues. He says, Father, glorify your name. That's what he's thinking about above all. It's man-centered Christianity. And I want to say this with as much humility as I can because I've been there. And it hadn't been that long ago where I've said the phrase, He would have died if it was just you. That's man-centered. It's man-centered to say that above all, he's hanging there on the cross thinking about me. It's not true. Above all, he's thinking about the glory of his Father and his name and his renown and his fame. And he's thinking about his own glory. This gospel thing does not end on us. We're instruments in this work that ultimately the end of is glorifying God. That's what this whole thing is about. So I'll trade in Michael W. Smith's song for a song by Steve Camp. And I don't want to condemn Michael W. Smith. I'm sure he's written some beautiful biblical songs, just not this one. I'm sure he's, just because it rhymes doesn't mean that it's true. And we need to sing rightly. I'd trade that song in for this song from Steve Camp that's titled. The title says it all. It says, Christ died for God. So I would change the tune just taken from his title. The title alone reflects a completely different approach to the gospel, which I would call a biblical approach that let's change and modify the song if Michael will give us, Michael W. Smith to give us the opportunity to do that. Crucified, laid behind the stone, you lived to die, rejected and alone, like a rose trampled on the ground. You took the fall. I'm tracking up to that point. You took the fall and you thought of your purpose to glorify God above all. That's what the gospel's about. Let me pray. Lord, if it takes trouble to glorify you, then we ask for insight when we face trouble. We ask for a biblical, truth-driven view of our trouble. We pray that we will be instruments of glory and not mopers or moaners, not languish in those moments, but that we'll let our light shine before men. And Lord, even beyond us, and just looking at our troubles from time to time, we look at the trouble of this hour, and the trouble that this Christ faced, and our Christ and our Savior and Lord, and we thank you so much that he endured, that he pressed on, that he obeyed, and that he did not sin. And he went to the cross and he bore our sin. Lord, we confess that our ultimate trouble of being crossways with you is rectified in that cross. We count that work finished, and we worship you as a result. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship.